On the Brevity Code podcast, we'll explore a wide range of topics from the very people that give form and color to our world. We'll hear from artists, brand builders, industry leaders, pro athletes, fitness and endurance coaches, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and many others. Through their actions, they enrich us with their vision, creativity, and bravery. Our guests have all been successful by flying in the face of conventional wisdom. We'll learn from them the ways in which we can apply that very knowledge to our own path and toward our own self-fulfillment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Brevity Code, the Brevity Code podcast. Today, my guest is Bobby Nichols. He's a pioneer in the action sports genre, specifically surf, skate, snow, and moto. He's founder of Sports Syndicate and serial entrepreneur in a variety of areas that we'll hopefully touch on today. So welcome to the show, Bobby. Thank you so much for having me. So it turns out you and I are from the same hood of West Covina. I don't know what the chances are of that. It's called Destiny, Ryan, and we're both from West Covina. (laughs) So how do you go from West Covina into this pioneer in action sports. But let's take it from the beginning. What were the early influences? Well, sports were my main focus as a kid. I, uh, youngest of seven kids um, uh, of Greek descent, you know, immigrant style family, raised that way, uh, but really had no affiliation to the action sports world other than some early years of, of skateboarding in the late 70s. But m- my focus was primarily baseball, basketball, and football. And you played those sports? I was, did. And you were into those sports as far as following pro teams and yeah i was the i was the you know i was the kid that loved those sports i I mean that's all i really did i didn't i I didn't really do anything other than play sports as a kid um i mean i knew every baseball player and every basketball player and every football player because that's what we did there you know before the age of information you know ours was the proverbial baseball card and and those things and watching the the sports and what have you on, on on tv and you know early early style of you know sports broadcasting and so you played like high school, like yeah. you strike me as a strap, a scrappy dude. Like you're a scrapper, right? Yeah, a little. And bit. I mean that in a complimentary yeah. Yeah. way. Yeah, I am. I ne- youngest I mean, of seven. You're a scrapper. I had no choice. It was you know eat or beat. And then, uh, funny enough, our first our neighborhood where we lived off in La Serena in West Covina before we moved to uh, when I was seven or eight. The 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 area in which we lived in there was a little cul-de-sac street you know a center street with, with two cul-de-sacs and there was no less than 70 kids in this in this cul-de-sac and we uh my best friend mark at the time since we we're still friends actually since we were seven eight years old and then dragon there was a yugoslavian family same you know kind of ethnic background we are you know we're greek orthodox and they were you know serbian orthodox and what have you and and they had seven kids and we had seven kids but we were the two youngest on the block and um I remember from my early earliest memories there is that you really had to to fit in and you really had to kind of fight for yours and and it it wasn't a bad it was a great neighborhood where we grew up and it wasn't anything like that but but it was you 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 had to to grow up quickly there yeah no no doubt we we grew up and then got out and moved to the coast and yeah your um, dad was smarter than mine i guess <laughs> so let's fast forward a bit to um you you end up going to college eventually yeah. uh, to USC and your area of focus there uh, from a from academia is real estate planning and developer yet we see you today in a much different light in fact I would say complete opposite of what you actually are trained for yeah academia great word um, actually kind of makes me giggle um, never been the best uh, student in the world. Um, 
uh, although I did um, I did graduate high school barely and 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 what have you and 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 wasn't great there. I thought I was actually going to play sports, and we can you know circle back to what happened there. Um, but as far as the academia side, you know, yeah, I had to go. I uh, went through the junior college uh, route because uh, uh, coming out of high school, I didn't have the the what I needed to get into the good university. And I come from a family where education is really, really critical. I have, you know, some really successful and powerful people in my family um, that have, you know, come from nothing and, and kind of made a little something of themselves, which is cool. And and then I was just like, wow, what am I going to do? What's what's the youngest black sheep going to do here? Um, this I'm the youngest of seven kids in this in this Greek family, and uh, and you know, how do I make my, my family proud? So I guess almost failing high school didn't do that, but I had to go to junior college route and I didn't like that. And finally my, you know, my second oldest uh, sister, Stephanie, who's like a second mom to me, she was basically like, uh, you know, you need to get your stuff together and, uh, and, uh, and figure out what you're going to do. And I said, okay, great. Um, I guess I'll try to figure that out. So I moved down here to Newport and I went to uh, Orange Coast College and I had to go a year to get my grades right to get transferred into SC. You know, I had three or four of my other siblings that tra- or, or that went to SC, so I had a little bit of a legacy. But I mean, I did. I had I I had to get you know basically all A's for a year to get into SC, and I I did do that. Um, and so graduating there, and I, again, I didn't know really what I wanted to do. I I found, you know, as I'm now at fifty, I realized that you know I I love the business side of things, but I'm actually in, I'm I'm more creative than I am studious. Um, but so the thing I thought I was going to get into was the, uh, was the, you know, the real estate side there. And, and I really liked it cause I really like to develop, a, I, um, I have a pretty good eye on design and what have you, kind of what people like, or I perceive that they like and what have you. So I, I love that. So I figured I would do that. Um, it didn't turn out that way as a, as a profession for me. Um, that's more of a passion play for me and a little sidebar of some things that I've done. Uh, on top of uh, you know, uh, starting the agency and what have you. And so, how how do you transition? You know, how do you get into it? How do you go from this major that you have into the sports agency side? Which you know, I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of um, hype, and uh, there's a certain amount of maybe sexiness and attractiveness mm-hmm. to that. Uh, mystique of job title when you think about what a, a sports agent or a sports agency is. Um, and it seems to me like there's a lot of barrier to entry. It seems to be like a who you know kind of thing. And I mean, I remember, you know, kind of coming up and, you know, there was a there was like an old saying, like you'd start in the mailroom of the, the William Morris Talent Agency. And, you know, I feel like you can't even do that now. You need to know someone to get into the to the mailroom. So how but so how do you crack that egg to begin with? You know, did you have mentors along the way? Were were there people that you looked up to that inspired you? And and what what caused the 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 course correction? Great, great question. Um, and multi multifaceted in that. And my answer would be, I think, because I think there's a lot going on in that. Just that 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 question. But to break it down, um, I think what I really did early on lack is a mentor. I didn't think my attitude was correct and I didn't have someone that would kick my ass for lack of a better word. And, and I was always one that could figure it out and, and kind of pull it together when I needed to and what have you. And, you know, of course I had some really, you know, gnarly lessons along the way, but, um, you know, I went to work, uh, my brother-in-law started an agency in 92 and I was going to come in and build the baseball side. Cause I really, really do know the, the stick and ball sports, um, 
probably better than I even knew the action sports world. I lived that that life for a long, long time and and what have you. But so we started the baseball side, and like you said, it's it's it it is glamorous, but on paper, the but the actual grind of it is really difficult. And um, and what happened? I was going after a first rounder, and I was going to get my biggest client to date, and and I remember this lesson like like it was yesterday, and it was between myself, this young kid who didn't really know anything against one of the big, big, big guys uh, that are still an, a, a top baseball agent now. And I thought down to the, the 11th hour and 59th minute, I thought I had this kid and, and who ended up having the 12, 14-year career and was an amazing baseball player. And the dad said, we're going with you and this, that, and the next. And I was just... This is it. I've made it. This is it. Can you I've name the baseball player? I'd rather not. Okay. Um, but, um, and we, I'm all, this is it. I've made it. And literally, the whole rug was pulled out on the, in that last couple minutes before the signing time. And I was just devastated. And, you know, and, and that was a great lesson. And it was a great lesson in business to learn when you're, you know, 25 years old and, and think you know a lot and what you really, you don't know anything at this point, you know, you totally, total eye-opening experience. And I think that was what, that was the, one of the best lessons I've learned, you know, as an early, on the onset, early, early career stage, uh, you think, you think you have it in the bag and, and, and you understand it. And, and in reality, it's, it's a big world out there and there's some big players out there. And I just got, I was just one of the many, you know. Do you think maybe just because, I mean, look, you hadn't earned yet. I mean, I was, why I was is someone going to hand you that? Yeah, it was. I mean, and I, you know, listen, I can, I can, I can put myself in that position now. I can right. imagine right. going up against some other young kid that's starting, you know, and and he may say all the right things, and he may be an awesome kid. And I was, I wasn't lying to these guys. I mean, I built a true relationship with them and a friendship. And but at the end of the day, you need someone to take that leap mm-hmm. for you, that quantum leap that mm-hmm. says, you know what, you don't have everything, but I believe in you. And we're going to go forward together. And I've had that in my career because when I didn't deserve it. And, and what I'm saying is that I can see someone that's younger getting the business now. I mean, of course they don't have what I have. There's no way they can have the amount of years and the deals that I put together. And, but, but sometimes you get lucky. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes you know, that, that can work to your advantage. But in the proverbial, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And you know what? It's, it's, there's a lot of truth to that. But sometimes you just need a break. And, and I think along the way, I've gotten a fair amount of breaks. Right. And it sounds like, to a certain extent, you've been in the right place, right time. So during your time at SC, sounded like your living situation was optimal from a uh, social side and maybe not from a got to study for a test side. Yeah, it it you know, I think those years I look back now and and I and I shake my head at some of the things that uh, transpired and I witnessed and and did and was was you know, was around and what have you from the entertainment side and the music side. Um I think that's what helped me today realize that you know, I I can easily be in the entertainment side because I don't ever get starstruck. I mean, I've had friends from, you know, you know, big name friends that that were in the music business to actors and actresses and what have you. And I always always looked at them as 
truly just normal people. And I never, I was never intimidated or felt weird or nervous or anything like that. I was always myself. And, and I think maybe that's what helped me, you know, through my career is because I never, I never got excited like that. It wasn't a big deal to me, you so know, this to is be prior, that. prior, right? This is prior to you starting your own business and or oh, even becoming years. an agent. Sure. Yeah. Years. So you had a lot of years of sort of rubbing elbows with, you know, the young, um, you know, Hollywood scene, like when you're in college or just out. Oh yeah. So I mean, how do you get to rub elbows with those folks? Cause that's not, it, exactly. it was weird. I think uh, it was, um, you know, I don't know. I like, look back and it's like a blur sometimes, you know, I, I had a girlfriend and, and, and then for four or five years and, and, and she, for whatever reason, they were just magnets to these types of people that, you know, she was an actress herself and the proverbial actress model thing and, and really was. And, and, and just a, there, she comes from a great family and they've taught me a lot. Um, and I lived with them and, and what have you, but like we played a Thursday night basketball game at, at, in LA and, and when Ben Affleck and Matt Damon had just showed up to, just showed up to on the scene here in, you know, the early nineties in LA and, and we were played against them, you know, sorry, we played against them in a basketball league and, and, and one of her, one of her best friends and, and at the time was dating Brad Pitt and all these people were around that, that I just, were just you and I talking is just normal people that, you know, that eventually made it huge in their respective, in their respective world. But to me, it was just, they're just, they're just people. And you know? but none of those guys had particularly broken out at that point, or were they starting it was, to? Uh, uh, Brad didn't yet. Um, he hadn't. But uh, the what was the movie that uh, Affleck and and Damon oh, did? Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. was just on the horizon. I think it was like twelve months later, oh, and man. then they became big, big, big. Uh, you know, big actors and and what have you. And then you know, Hailey's sister agrees. She was dating another A-list actor and. You know, it's just so that's stuff. who you yeah. did. You, so you were, I mean, were you rolling with those people, or would you see them at parties and like or at clubs? Like, how's that go down? Uh, we we would see them. It was, uh, yeah, I don't want to say that I was rolling there with my best friends. You know, I've, it's not that at all. But I mean, I would see them so much and and see them at the clubs and what have you. And that's when, for me, it kind of feels like that was our, like, what was that club in 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 uh, New York Club Fifty? What was it? Oh, Studio Studio Fifty Four. Yeah, kind of like the our era was. You know, it was Bar One and and the Roxbury, and and we were just these young kids with nothing. But for whatever reason, we got to go into these clubs, and that's where it all went down. And that that was kind of like our era. That was like the golden era of the club scene in L.A. So does that does that set you up? You think, and if so, how for your eventual run? you know, founding the sports syndicate and, and connecting the dots with athletes to brands. Like, do you think that that had an early influence or is that unrelated or, or to just give you a certain amount of, um, you know, ease around, you know, A-listers or people that are in the, the spotlight? Oh, for sure. It's totally formidable. And the, the, the thought that comes to my mind is it just, it really validates my brain that I don't, I don't have to live or, or react and 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 work in a traditional setting, and I think that's really did, it. Really did do that because I can I can fully integrate myself in a non traditional space and 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 be around that because you know it, it, anything from 
an agency side or the talent side. It is. It really is. There's. It's very non-traditional in 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 all walks walks of of the deals and and the people. I mean, you're dealing with people that the highs and the highs and the lows of the lows. I mean, when it's good, it's amazing, and when it's bad, it's really really bad. And 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 that's the part that most people don't see about the quote glamour. I, I think that's a hilarious name because. I mean, it is, it's glorified babysitting. Well, so let's talk about what it means to be an agent. What does a sports agent do? What are the duties? You know, give us the far reaching to the absurd. I mean, where does it, where does it go? Where are the boundaries? There are no boundaries. There truly is no boundaries. And, and it's, you, you look back and you can be embarrassed some of the stuff you've done and, and just laugh at it. Like, oh my gosh, I would never do that today. And, and, but that's it. When you're, when you're younger, you would do whatever it takes. I mean, the travel, the babysitting, the phone calls I would get in the middle of the night, uh, good and bad. I mean, stuff that I have to, I'd have to jog my memory, but I mean, I would get the most random stuff. You know, I was, I was the, I was the, the psychologist. I was the banker. I was the, the agent. We were the, the, the lawyers. We were, we, we were, we wore, I mean, every hat possible. I mean, I was the limo driver. I mean, we there's nothing that we didn't do or wouldn't do for our clients. You know, top guys or down to our, you know, mid-level guys, the guys coming up because that's what you do. You had to service what their needs were because I think athletes and, you know, you, you know, athletes are been coddled their whole life because when you're good at really good at one thing, you've been really good your whole life. And you know it's it's the it's the proverbial star athlete in the high school. I mean, he was a star athlete when he was a twelve year old on the baseball team. He was a star athlete when he was a junior high, and he was a star athlete, you know, when he goes to high school and then college and then pros. I mean, the guys that make it, there are that one percent that are the cream of the crop, and and they are used to being coddled. They are they're 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 very one dimensional on their brain side, which makes them allows them to be amazing at what they do and, and they don't let things and other forces get in their way and which in turn you can call it for what it is but you you have the athletes that are, are very egotistical and and narcissistic because that's what it takes to be the best at, at at one thing and when you're talking sports when all the lights are on you and and it's this and when it's time to perform to perform that's a god-given talent that few 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 people have yeah no i right um, so, so let's set the stage though. So let's talk about the, the creation of the sports syndicate and your vision on, as I understand it, you know, before you, obviously there had been surf skates, no moto movements happening, but it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the, those that genre, action sports, as it's labeled, um, was sort of largely underserved from a specialized point of view. Meaning, if you were, I mean, Tony Hawk, 1999, you know, does the 900. You know, is he with an action sports agency at that time, or is he with a more traditional? How does that work? In other words, you come in and say, "Wait a second, I'm seeing a whole, you know, amazing talent pool of kids that." Are, are they are relegated to these more traditional talent agencies, and perhaps that's doing them a disservice. And I'm going to corral them, and because I know that 
of with these sports comes these like-minded brands. And perhaps these larger institutional agencies are focused more on MLB and different types of well, yeah. deals for their players. So I, you know, to walk me through that. The, well, the, the, thought there. the traditional agency was just that. I mean, you look at, you know, baseball, basketball, football, um, hockey, the four, the four traditional st- team sports, leaving out tennis and, and golf, what have you. Those are, those are, you know, the single sports, but still, there's still parallels there. Um, back, then the you know ninety five percent of what the agent did for the player um, was derived from their contracts. Their the call it baseball. So you have the, the you know the baseball players association. So you you know you're a registered baseball agent and you get three percent. It's all governed by the PA, and 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 you don't you can't charge more than that because that's what it is. It's a set fee. You know, yes, you had the 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 all stars, and they would get a bigger shoot contract or whatever. But most of what they did, from a traditional traditional side, was all all the revenue was generated from their contracts. Fast forward to action sports, you say Tony Hawk. Tony Hawk was represented, I think, from a family by a family member, if I'm not mistaken, early on. Non, you know, they these athletes weren't with the big, you know, IMGs yet the CAAs, the Morris, it, they weren't with them. So we saw this as like, well, hey, wait a second. You know, we can take from what the traditional agencies have done in the non-traditional space and just apply it. It was really, it's really not that big of a deal and not that, you know, earth shattering that we created this new, you know, style of of representation. What we did is we took from what they were already doing traditionally, but what we did and we did better is we marketed our athletes in a far different way because we had to. We didn't have, you don't go to, you know, Volcom or whatever the big brands are, Ruka and all the rest of them and and say, okay, you know, you're going to pay us because we have a contract because you're on the, you know, you're on the World uh, Surf League and, 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 and what have you. We don't have, we didn't have that then. We didn't have, you know, motocross and supercross. You, you know, you had the best guy, of course, the factories would pay you and then the gear company would pay you. So we had to survive in that world. We didn't have a league. We didn't have a league that says you're getting paid X, you know, and we were, we were, you know, blazing new trails for, for lack of a better letter, uh, better word. But, you know, these agents now, when we were starting, I mean, but don't the you X think that, games were new? Well, it doesn't. It sounds like because of that lack of um, um, what's the word? I'm framework that perhaps you being in the middle tying the the athlete to a brand. It almost seems like maybe there's more of an intimate relationship and a more meaningful relationship there. Um, one out of your necessity to connect the dots. But more so just to, again, think outside the box and think about how they, a brand and an athlete can play off of each other. Again, you know, instead of just the traditional, you know, here I am, I'm a top round, you know, baseball player and I'm going to get my shoe deal from the three companies that do that. I just, there's just nothing intimate about it. There's just nothing. It's like, it's just business and that's part of it. But I think where you were playing is a lot more intuitive and a lot more cerebral and a lot more, uh, you know, just, um, again, the right connected tissue. We had no choice, Ryan. We we had to think outside the box. And we had to get the athletes that were going to parallel their brands. And early on, you know, let's not let's not forget that that the surf culture and the surf brand is the smallest by far of any of the action sports, by far. 
there are how many? 60, 70 spots in the entire United States that you can surf. And yeah. if you add them up, I could be wrong. You know, I'm no expert on that. But I can tell you that surf and that culture has more influence than all the rest combined. I mean, you see surf brands on country western guys. I see them with Hurley hats on. I don't, I don't even understand it. But they lo- I love it. <laughs> I don't get it either. But it's amazing. Yeah. But then you'll see, you'll go in the middle of America and they have DC on, they have Vans on, they have Volcom, they got Ruka, they have, I mean, they have all these surf brands and, and you see the influence because that is what it is. It's, it's, it's part of the culture and the, and the pillars that action sports represents, you know, it's the proverbial, you know, what the, it's the food and it's the music and it's the, it's the, you know, the, the street culture and then the fashion, it's all those things tied together. And I think that's what action sports has brought to the masses. I mean, we we had we had no place to showcase the talents other than to those finite audiences that watched surf, because you went had one big surf event at the U.S. Open, or you had you know a couple of the small ones down at you know San Clemente or what have you, motocross and supercross. They had the biggest audience because they had the indoor series, supercross series, which was in all the big uh, stadium football and baseball stadiums around the United States. And then you had the outdoor series in the, in the smaller areas um, in some of the same states and what have you. But, but, you know, skate was on its own. Skate was this little subculture that, again, had a ton of influence on the youth and, mm-hmm. and like surf. Those are the two, two ones that really are, have culturally integrated themselves. Um, you have so many brands that have, that have built themselves on the backs of these athletes. And in the beginning, it wasn't fair. But I think now it's starting... You know, it got fair and more fair, and these kids were starting to make money, you know, uh, from those said brands. But, but I think now we're in we're now in a different space. I think now we're in a now we're in the other side of it again. I think, you know, all these brands went vertical and they started buying themselves, and they thought that all these kids are going to wear, you know, top to bottom brand. And 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 we're finding that that's not accurate. You know, you don't want to be seen in the same shorts and t-shirts and, and shoes that doesn't happen and there was some, some mistakes along the way and we've seen some of the most iconic brands in 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 that category that are no longer i hate to say it but no longer important to kids and and the kids are are, are turning their backs yeah so i i think that's a great point and i i want to put a pin in that and, and circle back to the i want to put maybe some if if we're if we're able to faces to the names of you know or and or some color to each sport specifically and name some athletes that maybe you did sign in the early days and and maybe what some of that looked like as far as again what you can feel comfortable disclosing sure so it sounds like so let's rewind so you went to you had the baseball fallout early total devastation but you're yeah. young so you bounce back and totally you're you know you're that much wiser for that move um, how does the first athlete happen? Yeah. I, you know, I got it. I, I can't remember who, I can't remember who it was that brought us to us, but it was 96 and we got a meeting with Jeremy McGrath, who is, is considered, you know, one of the, if not the greatest supercross racer of all time. Um, uh, and this is how it kind of got started in the action sports side is they, they, we were going to do some outside stuff for him. We weren't going to handle his endemic stuff. We we're going to do non-endemic stuff, you know, other than endemic meaning nothing that what he does to do his craft, whether, you know, it's his gears, bike, helmet, boots, goggles, all that. 
outside sponsorship stuff. And, 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 um, you know, we, okay, well, that's fine. Let's see if we can put something together and figure out what, how we can get ourselves involved there because we're going to be thinking outside the box and sort of understand the endemic side and, and, and we're hopefully kind of on a handle on what's going on in the non-endemic side. And so we're put together a deal with, with himself and, and one of the major manufacturers with a, with, uh, with us tobacco, which is Copenhagen and skull. And, and at the time, even, even to today by today's standard, it was a really, really big deal. And, um, and, uh, we, again, we, we had everything done. We were, we were signing the contracts and we had this thing and it was a multi-million dollar, uh, year deal. And it was, I mean, again, even by today's standard, it's a big, big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would have spearheaded it. And, 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 uh, I think I looked back at the time, I think it was with American Honda actually. And, uh, so we, we're going to get this happening. And then, and then again, it's, it's part of these things that are, you know, the big, you know, hiccups and shakeups in your, in your professional career. Again, you're, you're counting your chickens before you have they hatch and you have it done. And, we're going to work, move forward, and this is really going to change the face of a motocross supercross. We're going to bring in sponsorships like they have in open-wheel racing when it was big back in the late 90s, and, and of course, NASCAR has been big for 40 years. So we're going to bring kind of that model to motocross and supercross. Or you're going to blow it right open. You're going to blow it open with this deal right yeah, here. Yeah, and this yeah. is it. This would have been the start of it, and a, a really big deal. You know, there's other deals that were that were done at the time, but just nothing to this degree, and bam, done. They they had an, the that's when the tobacco industry had a come to Jesus with the federal government and the federal government said nope no longer are you allowed to market sell do tchotchkes, stickers anything to to the youth and you're only to allowed to uh, focus um, the over twenty ones and oh and by the way if you're gonna do in anything in sports you get to pick one so for instance so like Marlboro stayed in Formula One racing. And even in some countries, you would see the Formula, you'd see the Marlboro, you knew it was the Marlboro insignia, but there was no Marlboro. Just red it, and white. It was, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Like red and white or yeah. circle and what have you. Yeah. And so UST, US Tobacco, so Copenhagen and Skull, they were really big in, um, they had to pick either NASCAR or drag racing. And if my memory serves me correct, they stayed in uh, drag racing. And so our deal was nixed because it was, it was deemed illegal. And so again, another one of those setbacks. But that, but that setback, what set the 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 train in motion in the oxygen sports world? Then after, after that happened, you know, I got another client, and then and then a client after that, and then you know the freestyle um, movement was really really big then, and we we had the best of the best. We built all the you know the careers of you know guys like Robbie Madison and Twitch and Kenny Bartram and a bunch of others, you know, and I hired a guy on and, and we really grew through that kind of, that kind of model. We grew through a little bit of acquisition. We brought in guys that were specialty specialists in, you know, so we did the, the motocross and supercross and, and the action or um, freestyle world. Sorry. So we had that handled. Then I, then I went and we, that took a couple of years to grow. And then we got into snowboarding. We, we, we got an ex pro that was a snowboarder and that's how we, built that little business up and the same thing with surf. And that's kind of how we did it. It was that, that, you know, loosely used word that everyone used the organic growth uh, model, but it, we really did because back then there, that's all that you had. It was so new. It was so new and moving at such a high rate of speed. And, and I always say, you know, they talk about glamor, but let's talk about X games. You know, I 
been to every one since the first one. And I mean, they were doing street luge in, I, in the X Games, right? And the, my favorite was when they used to do the bungee jumping. They would bungee jump and then do something with all the tricks off the bungee jump. And then they were doing, then they would drop them out of a plane on snowboards and they would do a bunch of tricks before they pulled. I mean, just the most ludicrous stuff you think now and like laugh at it. But that was the real, that was the start of it. I mean, and, and X Games now has obviously gone back to its core. I mean, they've done some things that are a little bit weird, you know, to try to gain some momentum with with some other eyeballs and what have you. But but at the end of it, the crux of the the beginning of X Games was was really, it's actually funny you look back now and it wasn't just, you know, skateboarding and it wasn't just, you know, that when they used to call it extreme, now it's act, you know, everything. It was extreme sports then. Now it's all action sports, you know. And you can't ever be, you can't call it extreme. People look at you cross-eyed, but, <laughs> but, yeah. And there were some things in the early days that were not only they weren't action nor extreme; they were just actually funny. It, and so it sounded like it really kind of kicked off in in moto for sure. I mean, did you know we talked earlier that you know it sounds like you had a deep knowledge, particularly in baseball and, and stick sports. What did you know about moto? Uh, nothing at that point. And so you get McGrath, yep. arguably the a legend for sure, if not oh, the, the greatest, the he still greatest is of all time. Yeah. And you don't know anything about moto. I think that's interesting. I think that speaks to you being able to think fast on your toes. Obviously, you know you're going to go do your homework. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not taking a shot when I say you don't know that. But my point is, I think it's actually fascinating and validating to that you got a guy. You know, you're you're a savvy guy. You still know how to connect the dots and put them in place, but you don't have a foundation for his sport. Essentially. Same same thing happened to me in baseball. I was the young kid that got ousted by the more established, and now I'm turning the tides. Yeah. And the other side of it that someone's going to take a chance on me, and I'm going to be that guy in this in this young you know developing sport. It wasn't. A, I'm not saying it's young. It was not a a de- already developed sport, but it it was just on the cusp of really blowing up and these kids start making a ton of money you know jeremy made all the money back then you know he was the first of the of the you know the millionaire boys club the couple guys that were was he, really making money was he crusty demons during? um during that during that time yeah so he jeremy would go out there and even show those boys how to do it in the dunes you know and that, that was the start of that freestyle movement i remember i was sitting in wahoo's Working at Massimo back in the day, this is mid '90s, mm. and there's a video playing on the TV behind my. Still the greatest head. ever. And I'm watching these guys fly yeah. on a motorcycle in the desert, getting more air than they. They're still to this day. I mean, just and I just remember going, "What am I looking at?" Yeah. Like it was a completely revolutionary film. It was thought, so, movement. Yeah. Right? It was so fun, Ryan. I mean that that it was. It, I I have really fond memories back then. It really you knew was all those dudes, all and, of them. And you probably represented half of half them. Half of them, yeah. I mean, we. Uh, it was I have fond memories. That was when it was really fun, and things were happening at such a high rate. And you know, you you're learning as you go, and it was there was nothing set in stone, you know. And and I just loved it. I really was passionate about it then. I really, really did. I loved the whole that whole freestyle movement and the racing side and. And those crazy little videos they put together it was the, it was it was cutting edge today. Now it's still the, what's going on today is still indicative of what they did twenty years ago. I mean that set the stage for all that's going on now. I mean that was it's only been twenty years, but you you can look back and and it's still relevant. 
It really is. I mean, yeah, things are bigger and faster and a little gnarlier because the machines have gotten so much better. But you know, but but it's hard to you know to compare the generations. You know, like who's the best golfer in the world? Is it Tiger Woods? Is it Ben Hogan? Is it Jack Nicklaus? It's so hard to generalize to generalize those generations and to just. I just like to leave them in their generation. They are the greatest at that time. And there's new guys that are the greatest now. You know, it's like basketball. Like the game has changed. You know, the, the, the Warriors have changed basketball. It's no longer just need one big guy and he dominates like in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s. We had the best guy. It is what it is, you know, other than Jordan. Now it's changed. The game is brought out. It's a three-point game. It's, I guess, technically they're maybe getting a little even smaller, but it's not so focused on just one guy. But I like to leave the generations to where they are. And it's not fair to, to, to say who and who's what because these guys in the 90s were, were blazing a new trail. Did they you ever were, play? Did you ever, sorry, not play. Did you ever represent any basketball players? No, nope, never did. No. Nope. So when you were doing the action sports thing, surf, skate, snow, moto, was there any room for a professional baseball player? Or, no, not at, the, at, at that so point. So at that point you were specialized. In, you, you have to be. I think you can't jump around um, because it was it was so focused and things were happening so fast back then. You know, it was it was it was a crazy time. And then, like that, everyone had agents. <laughs> it was like, well, wait a second, he's doing it, and and that's what started this whole thing about representation. You know, and you know, and our biggest our biggest competitor was the family. You know, with Astafin and and what he's done, and he's done awesome, and he is another one that's done an incredible job, and people owe a lot to to him, and for what he's brought to the table, and how to rep- represent athletes the right way, and and to really, um, I think another thing is to really appreciate how unbelievable these kids are, what they do. They are one hundred percent athletes, and and I remember hearing it early on that this, this is just like a sideshow. They're not athletes. And I've come from a traditional background for sports and I know a good athlete. And I'm telling you that these kids are every bit as good as any traditional athlete, any of them. I'd put up a, I'd put a motocross, supercross kid with strength and, and athleticism and obviously guts and all that stuff. And, and how well they're in shape to do what they do against any of them. Yeah, I think it took a long time for those sports to gain that credibility. But obviously, we're seeing they're, they're Olympic sports now, and you know, I think I think they are getting the the accolades they deserve. Um, and one of the things I want to do, I want to have on um, someone to talk about. You know, the you see guys do the things they do, but I don't. And and you know, specifically in moto, and you know, they're they're going huge. There's such an important aspect that really I don't that I think is underserved when we talk about it, which is the dedication and training. Yeah, these guys may be all tatted up and they look like they party, and I'm sure they do, most of them. But there's also, behind the scenes, an insane amount of discipline and dedication in the off-season, things you don't see. Um, and I just feel like that, that'd be something I'd like to talk to some of those guys about. It just, you know, it's, they're, they're not on the, on the podium because it's an accident. No, it, it again. It goes back to what I said a second ago. There, there. I know what goes on behind the scenes. I mean, I've been doing this for twenty years. I've had the best of the best, and 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 the kids that are winning races and winning championships. The amount of dedication 
and the and the physical and mental cost it's it's like not unlike any other sport i've ever i've ever been around including football including baseball including basketball not no hockey no these kids train literally 365 days a year they put their balls on the line every time they put their they they step their, their through broken their, bones everything i mean yeah. they're just i mean you hear about you know you hear about a baseball player he breaks his collarbone and he's done for 4 months i mean I have clients that break their collarbone and they're racing in 10 days because yeah. they'll go and get it plated, <laughs> surgery, 15 screws in that thing, and then back at it. I mean, they're tough, tough, tough kids, you know, and, 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 and they deserve everything they get, you know, and, and, and you know, those, the top guys are making millions of dollars a year and they deserve every penny of it because it is a dangerous undertaking. Supercross and motocross is a dangerous, dangerous sport. Yeah, I I much respect, you know, I just And you see him, I mean, who's the guy he crashed out pretty hard somewhat recently? Ken Roxon. Roxon, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk to him about his his daily regimen. Follow him on social media and find out what he does on a daily basis and what he's been through. You know, I was there after he crashed. And uh for where he's come back and and what he's going to do the sport needs him. Ken Roxon is a is a True gentleman and, and a and a and an absolute um, hero in our world. He's he's a great kid, and he's he's great for the sport. He's got a lot of personality. He's he's the one, you know. I think our I think the sport's gotten so serious. Motocross and Supercross has gotten so serious from where it was back in Jeremy and those that that those days of really hardcore partying, you know, after the races and and what have you. That's gone. That is that's no longer. These kids don't do that. I mean, they party at the Vegas round, which is the last of Supercross, and you see them all get drunk, you know, and and it's hilarious because that's their basically one time to blow their brains out all night, and they do it. and And the next would be at the end of the outdoor series, which is in you know after Labor Day. But other than that, the, those days are over. I mean, we used to go party after the races in the late '90s, and and that never ever happens with the top guys, top five guys, top six guys, never. You know, but Ken Roxon, he's, he's, uh, I, I hope he's back. He's, you know, he had the devastating crash, I think third round this year in January and, um, hopefully he'll line up and I think he's going to line up at Anaheim one coming, uh, coming in January, but he, we, with the sport needs him. He is, he's a superstar in a sport and he's got a lot of, a lot of, uh, style and, and grace to him, which I'm, I'm, I really, really pushing for him to get back. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's a fondness there and, when I, when I hear you speak of moto, it sounds like there's there's a ton of reverence and you know good feeling about your whole career. Just admiration and, and total respect for what they do because yeah. I've I've been around it th- at the top level for for so long that you know I, I really understand what it takes to be great. Seems to me too like your the career path and the timing worked out pretty well in terms of you know those sports all coming to prominence being you know, eventually, you know, recognized as an Olympic sport and um, the popularity of the X Games and, and others. Um, and at the same time, you have this new wave of drinks coming on, right? You've got Rockstar, you've got That's Monster, the Wild West. and Red Bull. And it seemed like it was a groundswell movement that all kind of came up, generally speaking, around the same time. Those And so the the sp- the athletes, the sports themselves, and those companies created this, 
I don't know if we call it legitimate. It was legitimate before, but this whole movement and you were. I think I think that. I think action sports legitimized action or uh, you know energy drinks. Yeah, you, you can you can be you can argue it to say that because it that, gave it what it gave it prominence and recognition and 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 what have you and acceptance and the same and conversely you can say that 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 the the energy drink sides uh, of the business they they've done their fair share too but they have they they have put a ton back in to this world but the action sports world has also given its blood sweat and tears to them as well yeah yeah no doubt um so so your career span at sports syndicate um running it and eventually selling it so what was that years in terms of yeah with that overall was, business that was you know almost you know 15 16 years and then and then at the end of 15 we sold it to WMG Wasserman Media Group um and the end of 15 and started uh the, the merger happened and then we started uh as one company under the WMG flag starting Jan 1 2016 and currently you're you're out, you're in, you're um, stoked, yeah. you're no, coughing, I, I, what are you doing? Well, I'm always stoked. <laughs> uh, and I, I really try to, I, I, I actually try to make Stay sure. Stay stoked. Yeah, I, I do. And I mean, I, I have a lot, lot to be thankful for. And, you know, of course, life gets hard and whatever. But, but I answer, I'm thankful. I'm thankful to, like you said, I, we, I feel we went through the golden era of action sports and developed something that's, you know, that's going to be a legacy that's going to be ongoing from here on out. And I think we changed the paths of a lot of people's lives and, and hopefully helped a lot of those brands and, and, and those athletes along the way, you know, it's, it, again, the, the, the action sports, you know, I, I'm passionate about it because I, I had a lot of good years there. Um, I just felt, um, you know, at the end of this year, I just, I just resigned, you know, and, uh, I just felt like I need to do something. I need to do something else. I, I, uh, I want to just, I want to leave on top. I guess, uh, and I don't, that's, I'm not sounding, you know, boastful or anything. I just, I don't, I don't have it in me to keep grinding it out. I feel like I've accomplished a lot of what I set out and a lot of things that I did even imagine or dream to do that. And it's, and it's, you know, and I, and I'm thankful for everything that's been given to me and hopefully I, I gave a little back. Yeah. Um, do you feel like there was ever, was there a particular moment where you, sat back and thought, I think I'm done, or I don't think I want to do this anymore, or, or you know, and or, I f like you just said, you know, I feel like I made some contributions, and now maybe it's time for me to try an alternate yeah, path. I don't, I don't, what was I don't know if there, if Ryan, if there was like an aha moment. I don't, I don't know if I, I didn't have that, like that epiphany, like, oh, well, you know, and I'm done. I think it was, Part of it was a was something that I was trying to suppress, like I'm gonna still keep grinding, and then and then the travel and and what have you was really starting to get on me. You know, I have two young kids, eight and five, American Mason, and then to travel, and then putting so much into someone else's life, and and then I was like, well, I don't so much want to do that anymore. I'd rather be home and taking them to their stuff that they're into, and I I think that was the process that was set in motion several years ago and then finally the travel and and what have and you just started getting to me more and more where it never used to bother me and you i'd spend you know a hundred thousand plus miles a year and in the in a plane i would even care it wouldn't even 
and now I'm I'm worried about like going to Chicago or New York or Florida or Texas or overseas. And now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, wait a minute. If I'm thinking about it, you know. And so I think those are the small little step, incremental steps that started gaining uh, momentum in my brain. And then finally, you know, just as of recent, I just that was the aha moment for me. I just literally, it was a Thursday, and I literally woke up and said, "I am done." And I made a decision. And once I make a decision, I've I, I made the decision. I don't go back. I don't vacillate. Um, I made the decision. I called the powers that be at, at, the, at the new agency and, and just said, I'm not doing you any favors. And, um, and if I'm not contributing, I'm done. I, I can't do that. I can't sit on my hands and, you know, I guess collect a paycheck. Not, not, yeah, doesn't no. sit well with me, yeah. you know, and, and, and I can tell you that the boys over at Wasserman were nothing but gracious and professional and caring and loving and respecting my decision. and, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the time we had. And, and you know, it was David and Goliath, this big old company that we, we, we would do battle with for years against these guys. And, and, and I, I've left with the same respect I had going in as going out. And, and I'm thankful for that because I'm not one that really likes to burn bridges and that's not my style. And, and again, I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful and stoked that, you know, that I got to sell the agency and, and, and the people that, that I had are still working there and, and they can support their family and chase their dreams yeah, and, right. and they can, they got something out of it. And I'm, and I'm happy because it's not just about me or, you know, did I make some money or I didn't make money? Of course I did, you know, but it's also, I can fee, I'm, I can look myself in the mirror and be grateful for the guys that were with me from the beginning that are still earning and still chasing their dreams. And, and, and hopefully they're, they're, you know, getting to a point where they're, they're still, you know, growing and 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 making a change and making a difference i'm I'm really really grateful for that right but i'm sure there was guys you know much like when you were younger probably came to you you took chances on them all and of them. they did right by you every one of them and, and they, we still treat them as a family we really were a family a small little company you know it was eight nine of us but you know what it was we we ran it like a family it was it was you know we you 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 laughed together, cried together, you know, you the good times, the bad times. It really was. It, and again, I think that's where that's where there's where there's a soft spot in my heart for it is because we we built something out of truly nothing. I mean, people laugh at us like, "What? What are you doing?" You know, you'll see. And yeah, at the end of no, the day, it was it was fun and it was a good ride and and I think every ride has its end and and I think that's that's where I was with it. You know, I'm not done, but I'm just done in this this part this chapter of my life, right? And so, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the philanthropic side of things, like your project in Africa. Sure. So, I mean, I, I do get the sense, you know, you you, you you're a kind hearted guy, and but you know, everyone's you know got a cause, right? But but what sounds like what you sort of dove into goes way beyond that. So, can you give a little light on? Yeah, I mean, what you're up to. I mean. You know, being an agent, it's, you know, you're cutthroat, you're this, you're shady, you're, you know, that's, that's, those are all the stereotypical things that get pushed upon you. That's just for the people that don't want to get to know you better and they try to keep it at a surface level. I can tell you that, you know, I wake up in the morning and never know that I'm not screwing anybody or, you know, and that side of our, our, our business is real hard to, to keep yourself clean and, and what have you. But we, but we really did 
run an ethical business and it came in. It's hard. And, you know, in our world, I mean, it's, 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 it's a doggy dog world and there's some, there's some the shady stuff that goes down, but, but it's important to keep your, your ethics and morals high. And, and we did that uh, for almost 20 years in that business. And, and, and with that, you know, I, I, how I got to Africa and how this, how this paid, played a huge role in my life is in 1999, uh, one of the people that I met through um, racing, Hilton, Beatty, um, is one of my, still one of my best friends. He's from there and he said, you must come over, you know? And so we did. And, and it, that was in 1990, 99, excuse me. And, uh, we went over to Africa and it, and it forever changed my mind and my life. And it's, and when they say Africa gets in your blood, it, it truly does. When you go there and you have these feelings, uh, Africa is a, just a real special place. I mean, yes, it has a dark side, there's no doubt. And, what part of Africa did you land uh, originally? Uh, South Africa. So South we were Africa. in Cape Town and Johannesburg and uh, and subsequently all the different cities within within Southern Africa or South Africa, excuse me. Um, but when we were there, I, I was uh, with a friend of, uh, at the time that worked for a company here in the United States that dealt in the intravenous or IV side of the uh of the medical side of the world and uh and and it's the norm over here but over in africa up until we got started what what, what we're talking about now they were still using the, the needle in the bottle and and there was needles everywhere and there was um bloodborne illnesses you were the, the the healthcare providers the nurses and then the the nurses assistants and the doctors were were were, were always constantly um exposed to you know the hepatitis and the different bloodborne illnesses you know people say aids or whatever or hiv excuse me um there's some truth to that but not true to that you know when the, when hiv is you know hits the air it, it's gone it's not like hepatitis you can get it and what have you but but people are dying from needle sticks right over in africa and and this system that was over here in america i just asked a simple question you know why is your stuff not here saving lives. I mean, it could save lives, you know, to countless. I mean, remember in, in the late nineties, I mean, HIV was rampant. I mean, there were, there and were scary just, just because of the unknown. We weren't, the education wasn't yeah. there. And my gosh, still it's, it's a, it's a deadly disease. And for most it's a death sentence. It's not like you can, the people that have money that take the antiviral stuff, you know, i.e. Magic Johnson, you can't even be detected in a system anymore. Right. Um, well, they don't have that over there. They don't have, they, they don't, they, they don't even have Tylenol. They don't have, you know, whatever things we take for granted. Anyway, long story short, um, wrote a business plan, got the partners involved that I needed to over there. Um, we launched a company in 2000 and, uh, we brought the first needle free, needle free IV system to the continent in, I believe May of 2000. It sounds crazy that prior to you, that that wasn't, I mean, no. I don't, I guess it's just things we just take for granted here. Oh yeah. Everyone's got that. Right. But right. it's just not even close to reality. That's the American thing. And, and that's, and it's no judgment. It's just because people haven't been, you know, people haven't been exposed to it. And again, you, I never would have had that idea hadn't I been exposed to it. So it doesn't make me any smarter or any whatever, any more conscious or whatever conscientious of what goes on it just when you're there if you're not moved 
you're dead. I mean, yeah. I can't even imagine not going to Africa, not be moved emotionally some way, somehow, to, to see what these people are going through and what they don't have compared to what we have. And they have smiles on, your, on their faces. It's, it's, they're unbelievable, these kids. I, I fell in love with these kids. So you from literally, the, you, went in, you were in the hospitals, you saw some super tragic stuff, I'm sure. And I saw, nurse, I saw nurses and doctors that were infected yeah, yeah. and dying and have died because of their help and by the circumstances of, of their job that they have been unfairly infected yeah. with those, you know, those disease we spoke about. Yeah, seen it. And, and so, I, and that was 2000. Yeah. So we're 17 years in. I mean, how, it's got to feel pretty good, you know, knowing that countless yeah. lives it's my, and uh, circumstances yeah. and families of those. I mean, it's just- it, Generations. It's right. gonna It's going to change- It'll change the dynamics of a generation from moving and moving forward. It really has. It's, yeah. uh, and I'm just a small, tiny, tiny, tiny little conduit to that change. And 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 if I had a resume, that's the feel good piece on my resume that I'm most stoked about um, about helping others. And I kind of feel like just that's if, if if you can help, you should help. Yeah, and if you can see, you, you should see. If you can change, you should change, and 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 that's that's my age. I guess I turned fifty, so now I'm on the other side of that. Now I'm not a wild youngster anymore, and and you you I think your focus becomes a little more acutely focused, and you start looking at your life a little differently. And I can look back, even while I was entrenched in building that, I didn't see it because I was in the process of building. I was going to and from the United States back to Africa. I would, I would literally be doing my agency work here, get on a plane on a Thursday and come back on a, on a, on a Monday. And that doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but it's 21 hours to get to South Africa and it's plus nine hours ahead. No, so it's brutal. It was absolutely brutal. No, it's brutal. And it's, but it's, it pales into now, what has, those people deal with over there. For sure. Now, has that program, your program or your group's program, has that been rolled out wider or was it just an, an Africa initiative and there it stays? Or like, so what is the status today? Great, great question. Um, we sold the business um, for some political reasons, unfortunately, at the end of 2007. Um, and there, you know, there's a lot of changes going on in South Africa that that, that I... I don't agree with, but I, again, I can't, I can't change everything. You know, I can only do what I can. Um, so we, we were basically forced into, into selling the business. Um, so we sold it to a big conglomerate over there. That's, uh, you know, akin to like our Baxter medical, just a huge, huge company. Um, and so what I know is that we did a huge government tender business and government tender business is what, what is you're basically sell to the government uh, institutions there that provide healthcare for the people that can't afford or, or, or on the border of can't affording. So it's all the public hospitals, you know, um, it's, there's, there's the private side and that is solely for the top, I would say 5%, 10% max. And all the rest is a subsidized organization. And so we were selling to the subsidies for the, on the, on the public side. And then, so we had to get some type of 
uh, ownership that wasn't in line with our ownership. And so then we sold it and what have you. And so, so what I've been told is, um, we were, we were in a few countries other than South Africa. Um, now, um, I want to stay in, in half of the, the Southern African states or excuse me, countries, the, the products being sold there, whether it be, you know, you have Namibia, Zambia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, uh, Mozambique, and then you get up north into the DRC and Angola and those places, but a very small market. Um, you know, healthcare there is still um, a very, very uh, what's the word? I'm. Uh, it, it's a very touchy subject there. It's Africa is truly the have and have nots, and there's so much corruption uh, up and down the line um, that it's hard to even get medical aid to these people because the, 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 the intermediaries are stealing and then they're hijacking the product, reselling it. It's a, it's a real, it's a real problem. Again, it goes back to as an American, you know, you can't just go to Hogue hospital cause you broke your wrist. I mean, it's, you may sit on a broken wrist for two weeks. You may I mean, it's, we, it's, it's shocking. I think yeah. most parents or most people would, would go over there and bring their kids that it it would be almost so much overload that it would be surreal right right and so there's that side now was there some educational aspects that you're currently doing yeah we too? yeah i'm uh i'm eventually we've we've done some stuff over there with my partner who's still uh actually the managing director of the unit that we sold there now and eventually you know what we're what we're trying to do and um is going to figure out some type of clinic and or school for you know the lower the low level lower lying areas the out of the city stuff that goes on where it could be a mobile unit it could be it could be a it could be a brick and mortar it could be whatever um, so I'm going to be working on that now that I have a little time and to kind of figure out some foundation side um, of the business and we can figure out how we can affect lives because the thing over in Africa that I really really love is it's immediate it's 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 basically like the red cross in a flood like someone needs a blanket you have a blanket somewhere in africa it's the same thing if someone needs something they get it i mean people are still dying of you know of malaria over there they're dying of different things you see you know gates has spent i don't know how many umpteen hundreds of millions of dollars he's you know that's in there just to change that dynamic the the, the stuff that we just the inoculations that we have over here that that's a dollar or two dollars or three dollars, they have no access to that. And and it's so that on a much, 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 much smaller level, I want to be able to do something. And even if it's changing the one family's life or whatever, you see these kids and you would do anything for these kids. And they're they're so gracious and 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 happy for with nothing. It's a real, it's a real lesson from a Western perspective. It's a real lesson. Yeah. Well, and it's, just, it's heavy. It's heavy. No, it's, super it's not, heavy, it's man. not, it's not for the faint. I mean, it's no. heavy. Yeah. It's heavy. You see kids over in Zimbabwe that have, that have distended stomachs and, yeah, no and this, that, the next it's, it's heavy. And it's every day right now it's happening. Oh, I mean, it's every day in many countries it's, with, and with a smile on her face, which is shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I don't know. Should we should we end there? I feel like maybe that was depressing. <laughs> let's let's take let's take one more pass at this. Sure. I heard. Uh, yeah, but it's not depressing. It, the, but if you, it's depressing in the reality. But the but on conversely, on the other side of the reality is what I was getting at is you can make such an impactful change with little, with mm. so little. Just that's what that's what excites me. I don't want to change the world. I don't want to change. The city. I, I want to. I want to change one house because I think if you change one house, what is that? What's that downline? What if you help a mom, a dad, and they always live with their grandparents? You know, because it's a true communal uh, society. You, w- what is that value? You know, you, then you you save those kids' lives, and then now they're not being diseased, and they're not malnutritioned, and they have water. It's 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 pretty astounding what what you can what you can do with just a little just a little help. Just, yeah, we need more of you, huh. right? You know, <laughs> let's switch gears. I have a ter- this is a terrible segue here. Let's go from that into uh, I hear a pastime of yours, which is hunting. Mm. So when you're talking about hunting, I mean, is it the traditional deer hunter, or do you go like exotic game? Or are you like what's your you go pig like where are you on that spectrum uh, yeah no funny uh i have i'm i have never shot a deer in my life never i'm not i don't no interest i have no interest sitting in a deer stand um it just doesn't do it for me so um what but does? i've done I, I love to fish and hunt i mean yeah i've exotic i've hunted in several places around the world i fished all around the world um I really I, I love that, and it's not for the. I guess it it's for me. It's 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 getting the trip organized and getting all the things put together and organizing the trip and going to the trip and almost like the physicality of yeah, the trip. Yeah, I the, love going and doing it and camaraderie. You know, camar- yeah. Camaraderie is huge, and to go out there and hunt and and I've been on ten and twelve day hunts where I have never even pulled the trigger. Yeah. I mean, I remember one, and I was in Zimbabwe for twelve days on a buffalo hunt. I didn't shoot one thing because it wasn't. It was nothing. It wasn't to the standard that I wanted to to shoot, you know, the trophy as they call it or whatever. And and it's just, but for me, it's it's so much more than just doing that. Just like fishing, it's like being out on the water, or being out in the mountains, elk hunting, or if it's whatever, you know, pheasant hunting in North Dakota or South Dakota, or quail hunting in the South. Just I love being out outdoors and and being with my friends and and doing that stuff. I really really love it. Um, and it's a, uh, it, it's a, it's, it's a great thing. And it's, it's, it's two sides of the table for sure. Cause a lot of people are like, I could never do this or I could never do that. And I'm not one to judge. I, I, I can, I yeah. guess, you know, you know, it's like, we just got back from hunting a month, month and a half ago. And I shot this kudu bull that I've been, I went, I've hunted three times to try to get one of these things. They call it the ghost of Africa. Cause these things are hard to, hard to get. And, you know, and yeah, I shot it. It was what five hundred fifty pounds. You know, we donated four hundred pounds of meat to the village. I mean, that's right. a lot. And and people say, well, that, that's just your, you know, that's just your way of saying it's okay or whatever. Okay, I accept that. <laughs> well, yeah, I accept that. Yeah, we don't we don't need to talk about the politics of that. I think I think you know you listen to Rogan or Adam Greentree talk a lot about. Um, the conservation aspects and the give back from the hunting community and the the calling of populations. Um, I think that there's a lot of truth there too um, that people sort of refuse because it just sounds dirty. It just sounds ominous, but in fact, it's not. And in fact, 
safe to say most hunters love and respect animals. True. I'm one uh, of them. Which is But know, again, I couldn't I could never shoot and and again it's it's the political side. Like I could ne- I have no idea how anybody could shoot an elephant, a yeah, rhino, right, right, a cat. That so I guess I'm talking about both sides of my mouth, but that's my level well, those of are, comfort. That's but, my comfort level. I don't yeah. I couldn't do I couldn't do that. Well, those are yeah. indigenous economic gains for those who have no other means of income other than, you know, committing crimes, which that is also. On the right? poaching I mean, side? Yeah. Mm. Right. I mean, that's, I don't, I mean, no, maybe there's, but f- there's hunters that pay to shoot those, men, those mentioned, ath- yeah. a, you know, animals. Like it's just that. I don't t- get that, that either. Yeah. That's right. beyond my, that's beyond my comfort zone, you know, but some, you know, like my sister B, she, she couldn't kill anything. I mean, she's a animal lover as am I, but it's just a different, she doesn't understand that side of the business where it's, the hunters have protected so much land and, and they vow, the, the animals are, are more valuable alive than they are dead. And that helps with the po- anti-poaching. But, you know, someone like my sister who, who she couldn't kill any. She, I mean, I, I can't even go pheasant hunting. She's like, oh, how do you do it? And I was like, it's just hard. You know, it's just, I guess, I guess I can. I don't know. I don't really have a problem with that. Yeah. No, I think I get, and I also value certain aspects of that. I, I've not done much by way of hunting. I, I don't know if it's an age thing too, but the more older I get, the more I kind of am maybe like, eh, maybe I could try really? something. Yeah. Usually it's the opposite. Really? Yeah. No, I, maybe it's maybe it's who I'm hanging with. I got a bunch of buddies that, that do and they really enjoy it. And I train with them. You know, we'll put the loaded backpack on and do a 10 mile hike and, and all that. And I love that side of it. Because they're like, going to a high altitude hunting, like elk hunting and, yeah. and, and like Andy's hunting or yeah. Russia hunting. Yeah, cool, cool. So so they're in and, and, and I, I love all that and I can do it, no problem. Uh, but yeah, like I said, you know, I don't know, pulling the trigger, whole other deal, um, which remains but, to be seen. But have you ever gone tuna fishing? Uh, yeah, when I was a kid. But I mean, imagine, imagine going, I mean, tuna fishing, how violent that is, like in the sense that it's a bloodbath. It's, and if you're not like, I couldn't even, but my, <laughs> I couldn't even imagine bringing my sister. She would be like, oh, wow. Yeah. Cause I mean, it is really, really bloody. You yeah, know, they bloody decks. There's a, there's there's a term because it's the truth. And you go yeah. tuna fishing, it's blood is everywhere. Sure does taste good though. Oh, it sure does. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. It just it does. Bobby, I feel like we could do this all day. Um, let's uh is there anything uh, that you want to 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 promote or talk about uh, new opportunities at this point or just maybe is there contact information someone wants to get a hold of you how they do that, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, sure. Yeah, no, I just, the only thing now I'm working on, I have a knee brace company called Mobius. Um, we launched uh, about three years ago. Um, so again, uh, I'm not working on that at a day to, uh, as a day-to-day uh, uh, job, but I, I mean, again, I, I put the team together and raised the assets and the intellectual properties and what have you and put together a, a team that's far smarter than, than I'll ever be, and I'm proud of this team. That, and, uh, and we're stoked to see what, what goes what goes to the next step on on that? We have uh, we have one brace, uh, a knee brace, and a, and a wrist brace. And I just saw some uh, pre prototypes of another brace that's coming out for a more traditional brace for like say football. And I'm really excited about that. And I mean, you can if someone wants to ask me a question or needs you know anything. Is there a website I, for that? Just Mobius yeah, it's, yeah, Mobius Technologies. You can you can see it. Find us on online. Um, but I'm Bobby Nichols at Mac.com. Awesome. All right. And uh, thank you all for listening today. 
Bobby, thank you for coming in studio. Oh, Super fun to have you. Yeah. Um, and thank you all for uh, checking out the show and your continued support. So we will look forward to seeing you next time.